0: podcast, Time Out for Mental Health, is where we speak to sports figures, mental health experts, and leadership gurus about their experiences as it relates to mental health issues associated with depression, masculinity, and suicide. These sensitive topics are often swept under the rug, as detailed in my upcoming book, You Don't Have to Swallow Your Gun, a simple book for men about depression, masculinity, and suicide. Getting a handle on a man's masculinity will improve relationships, both personally and in the workplace. Everyone needs some support to ask for help when they feel off or a bit disoriented and foggy and don't know what is really going on with them. If they do not seek help, their behavior can turn dangerous, including alcoholism, drug and pill addiction, anger, fighting, violence, and in some cases, death by suicide. On Time Out for Mental Health, we want to uncover these issues so men and women can live a happy and healthy life, even though they do suffer from mental health issues. Our guest today is Clint Adams, a former policeman in one of my favorite places, the Great Commonwealth of Australia. He's now one of the foremost authorities when it comes to mental health and suicide prevention in Australia. Clint has a diploma from the University of Sydney concentrating on rehabilitation counseling. He also has vast experience in human relations for many companies throughout Australia. And now, like myself, after years of working in business, Clint has switched gears and is now being of service to others, having issues with mental health and death by suicide, which is just too prevalent in our world today. We're honored that Clint is sharing some of his time with us. Clint, how are you doing today?
1: I'm doing pretty well, Tim. Thank you for that good introduction. <laughs> Much appreciated.
0: Well, that's you, buddy. I'm glad you're here. <laughs> I noticed, Clint, that you're now working as a director of Blue Flame Projects, a consultancy firm which designs resilience, leadership, and mental health programs to implement in the workplace. All of that kind of piques my interest. Can you tell us a little about everything you currently do?
1: Yeah, sure. Look, um, if we backtrack just a little bit, I guess um, my, my HR roles, I originally started many years ago uh, studying psychology with The View, and this is in the days of science of the Lambs, which shows my age a bit, but um, I got really interested in criminology and, and that kind of thing back then. And and over time, I, I kind of used my psych background and became a counsellor along the way, and, and I did a lot of police work and stuff like that, and, and was designing some programs for the police in tactical disengagement, you know, um, uh, that first responder kind of stuff. Anyway, I won't bore you with that details. Then then later on, I went into HR roles, uh, human resources roles, as, as you pointed out, with a view of change management. And part of that became health and wellbeing and all those kinds of stuff. So I used a lot of elements of that in designing programs, more, more in the workplace, working with adults, you know, change management, leadership development, that kind of stuff. And then essentially over time, I, I kind of designed more programs for, for bigger teams, I worked with bigger organizations, and then, and then I was doing a lot of this, um, this kind of work where I'm dealing with teams and leadership and that kind of stuff. But in a nutshell, what, what kept bug, bugging me in one of my roles, I, I had access to a lot of information um, in a healthcare facility, a big healthcare facility at Community Health and all that sort of thing. And and what really bothered me was the statistics on how young people were on antidepressants, how many young people that attempted suicide were getting psych help as a result of the attempts, and all these kinds of other spin-off things that, that kind of come with with young people having issues and trauma and all this stuff. So I, I kind of back, this is going back a few years. I started thinking of ways I could help with using my psych background on how we could maybe do earlier intervention with, with kids at school. And so essentially fast forward to where I am now, I wrote a book along the way, which was about helping with a, a child who's being bullied and suicide prevention. And uh, at, at the start of this year, because my book was coming out, um, in February this year, I had all intents of really going to schools, working with the schools on the back of the book about what the school program was going to be, and also still working with corporates in terms of helping their employees with their mental health and well-being, which is stuff that I'd been running um, more for the companies I worked for individually. But now I was kind of looking at what other corporates wanted to just focus on that mental health and well-being and resilience and all that kind of stuff. So there's kind of two two places I'm working or two spaces I'm working in. One is about dealing with that change management stuff where you're dealing with adults, but the other one is dealing with really, really young kids who are just coming into the school system who might be at risk ones who've had trauma in their lives, all that kind of stuff. So, um, you know, the, they're the two kind of platforms that I've been really focusing on. And the intent this year was to kind of push that more. Obviously COVID had a bit to say about how much that went very well. So uh, we kind of reset it and, and try and launch again next year in, in a much bigger way. But but that essentially is what, I, what I'm what i working on.
0: Yeah, that sounds great. I, I can relate to it. Uh, I was big on leadership. I'm taught leadership training. And, uh, uh, and then I found, you know, myself writing a book as well about my experience with depression. And I noticed how men have a difficult time talking about their feelings and emotions and you know in my research i found 300 million people in the world have depression but only half of those get get help and i thought right. i could channel my efforts you know if i could get people motivate them to get help that we could we could have a better world but you're targeting on the young on the youth is very very right on because that's where you know all the behaviors uh, that end up being adult behaviors they come they're formed in those formative years as a as a youth so absolutely I, I really agree with you you there now when you were just starting out did you ever think you'd be such an influencer in all these areas that you've been working in?
1: Probably not. I, Like I said, I, I started off wanting to get into forensic psychology. It wasn't called it back then in my day. It was probably just I did a science degree in psychology. We didn't have true criminology like we do now. But, you know, I was really kind of wanting to go in and, and, and understand why people do what they do from, from a criminal perspective. So I guess my, my focus back then was always about, you know, how you could kind of help society by, you know, stopping criminals from getting to that point. And so I guess in a nutshell, I wouldn't have expected to do what I'm doing now. But, you know, I can see how I ended up doing that because I became fascinated with other aspects of of people, and then it kind of grew from there. So at the start, no, very, very different. I certainly didn't expect to go into HR. That was uh, purely accidental. Um, but I do enjoy it and I can see how they, they mesh so well together. As you said, you've worked in leadership and all that kind of stuff. You'd be aware that, you know, people with good mental health uh, tend to be better managers, be better leaders. Um, you know, certainly if, if someone's really struggling, um, they're not as productive, they're not as focused, they're not as um, inspiring to others, they kind of have to get themselves into a better head space. Um, and, and I guess, you know, they all go hand in hand, you can't take the person out of the job in the and they leave their life at home behind, you employ that whole person. So, um, you know, they're, they're very intertwined.
0: So let me ask you, what drives you to such a high level of excellence in all these areas?
1: <laughs> I guess um, I had some I'd say moments of clarity that made me change what I wanted to do. Many years ago when I was doing the, I joined the police force after finishing my psych degree with the view of doing that forensic psych stuff. But I had a, an interaction with a young lady who was in our police cells. I used to work in a, in a big station that was right next to the courthouse. So when people were coming in for trial and stuff like that, they'd stay in our police station. We'd have cells that obviously housed men and women. Um, you know, luckily there's not as many women as, as men in, in there. We obviously want to have as little as possible anyway. But generally speaking, a lot of times there weren't many women in those cells at that time. And you could potentially house them for up to a month, depending on how long their trial goes for and that kind of thing. So this particular lady was in the cells. Um, she'd basically been in and out of, you know, a little bit of time in prison, not too much. But this time she was she was a heroin addict, early 20s, had um, some issues where she'd been caught and now she was definitely going inside for what she thought was going to be two or three years. I started talking to her purely because she was by herself. The guys had their own and other guys in Kind of thing. So I talked to her through the door and have quite decent conversations. At this time, I was also doing the the rehabilitation counseling course because I was interested in true counseling as well. And then just getting on and talking to her about, you know, ways she could change her life around and what she needed to focus on and taking the time. She had a young child and all this kind of thing. And so, um, you know, I'd spoken to her for about a good part of a week, came back one day and she'd obviously been sentenced and, and off to prison. And I didn't think too much of it for oh, months, maybe a year or more any one day I was doing a run, I used to have two or three different runs that I used to do when I was a lot fitter and um, playing football and stuff. And um, anyway, this particular day, I saw this person come running out of the front of this house and um, sort of waving at me. And obviously being the colour that I am, uh, I probably stood out a bit more than than the average person. So she recognised me and um, it ended up being her and she'd put on a lot more weight. She looked a lot healthier. And anyway, she kind of said, look, I just wanted to stop you because I remember the time that you'd you know, spent some time with me in the cells and and all that kind of stuff. And she said, look, I, I went away. I listened to what you said. I thought about how I can change my life. Uh, I was a model citizen in, in prison, got early release. She got out, you know, like half the time that she was supposed to be there. That was her parents' house that she'd run out of. And she said, you know, she's looking after her child and was able to really turn that around. And she was doing some part-time work and wanted to kind of thank me for that and was kind of I was kind of emotional about that. I really thought about um, the path I wanted to take um, with what I was doing as a police officer, potentially as a counsellor, and then that kind of really just pushed me to really focus on the counselling side and wanting to help people. So yeah, that was a big change in in what happened for me. Um, and then, like I said, the other part was really getting that statistics um, down the track on what the younger people were doing that made me focus more on that side. Cause when I was doing the counseling, it's very one-on-one and you'd appreciate, you know, you, you do one-on-ones and you can kind of get so many people in a week. But when you kind of look at the bigger picture and you really step back and go, you know, we can do a lot more at a, at a bigger level using more of the resources that we have rather than one-on-ones as a counselor, you might get the top 30 people in a week, you know, when you're dealing with, um, system design work and looking at the big picture. How can we use teachers? How can we use whatever other resources we have? Um, and leverage that um, that knowledge and, and get in earlier. It's a lot easier to kind of do it earlier than it is to do it later and do the change management stuff, which is what counselling is all about. So, um, yeah, th- those kind of things really focused and, and made me change what I, what I was doing and how I was doing it. And, and to your point around trying to Lift my game. Um, it it kind of just inspired me. The fact that I was able to, you know, uh, have this impact on this one person through an interaction um, was was a big thing for me. And then I started to think, well, what more can I do? You know, you see these great inspirers, people, Tony Robbins is of the world, who are getting out and you know, getting around and doing stuff. Um, so you go, hey man, you know, he's he's an awesome guy, but why can't I be that awesome guy? Why can't I be the one that's you know, doing those influential things? And and you kind of it, it makes you think about you a bit more and, and you kind of go, well, I've got to know more, I've got to do more. And, and so that's kind of where, where I'm at at the moment. Great.
0: Well, with all that counselling, how would you describe your style or is there a central message that you try to get across to people when you're counselling?
1: Yeah, I think over the years I've, I've learnt, um, like there's lots of, you know, there's lots of, I guess, methods that people use, in their their own practices. And, and what I've found is that the common theme, I'm not actually kind of aligned to any specific methodology because I've seen that lots of ways to the top of the mountain. There's things that, you know, work for some people that don't work for others. Some people don't have any therapy. They find Jesus or Buddha or whatever it is. It, it's all about what they end up focusing on and things that change their focus from being in what I call a, a red brain space, which is that amygdala-driven kind of high emotions, but they can't break a cycle and whatever gets them changing to focus more on that future state on a solution um, is what works. So for me, it's about people understanding a bit more about how their brain works, how they create those patterns or habitual thoughts in their heads. And then if that's an, if that's driving them to a negative space, how they can change that around. And again, getting them to think about ways to do that, and what works for them is kind of the key. So if certain things don't work, it's not about, oh, I'll go see one counsellor and I won't do anything else. Or, you know, there's there's lots of things that we can do in a mental health space that I just don't think we do. Like, if I, if I want to use a good example of it is when we think about physical health, you know, even as I'm I'm nearly 50, but when I was a child at school and I'm pretty sure it's not dissimilar now, you know, you learned about nutrition, you learned about doing cardio, you learned about weight training, we actually played sports, you know, was encouraged to do the physical stuff that we do. We've got gyms, we've got personal trainers, all that stuff, cookbooks on diets and all this stuff. But when you talk about mental health, what what do they teach us? You know, you might learn something later in, in your years at school mm. about a bit of psychology and brain structure and stuff, but none of it seems to be practical. So for me it's about people understanding more about how the brain, the body – all that kind of works together and what things you can do along the way, like, you know, what, why do dogs make you happy? Why do you feel good? Why do people who actually own a dog live longer? Because, you know, your oxytocin levels are up and your focus isn't just on you. You now have something to care for. And, you know, there's lots of these things that all add to better mental health and understanding some of that is is, is part of what I use in my counseling sessions about people understanding how when they are in that fight or flight mode, the blood's running from here into the muscles. So they don't have a fully oxygenated brain. They're not actually thinking with the parts of the brain that's going to work for them, their body's in that state. And if they're constantly going back to that same state, it's about understanding how those neurons are wiring and firing and how they need to change that for themselves, even just using... A thoughts diary, for example, it uses a different part of the brain because you're doing analysis work. Now you're using the frontal cortex rather than the amygdala. So all those little things and and different methodologies is about helping the person to overcome those things. And that's kind of what I focus on. And I I don't go too much jargon with them, but they need to understand that brain structure first and then what we're doing and why we're doing it that works for them.
0: Now, looking back, is there one moment in time that you felt the most gratification for your work and why? Probably
1: probably the one that I mentioned before about the young lady in prison. Um, the, the why was because, I, A, I didn't expect it. I wasn't actually going there to, um, I guess I just, um, I bonded with her through the conversation. You know, as a police officer, it can sometimes be easy to look at a person who's a criminal and, and have a, a, a negative view about them and, and kind of go, you know, there are no hope, for, she's a druggie, she's whatever. Um, but for me, it was kind of, you know, uh, it was an eye-opener that, you know, I was able to have that conversation with her and obviously, you know, she's got no one else to talk to, so she was kind of stuck to talk to me. But um, the fact that, you know, she then felt compelled that she had seen me later to have the conversation, to actually thank me, and I could see, you know, the fruits of, having just that conversations with her to change those things did have a big impact on, on me. Um, On a number of fronts, I kind of thought, you know what, I don't really anymore was kind of a, a bit of an eye opener around that. You see someone calls you as a cop very often to do good things. It's always the negative side of it. And, you know, you, you, you unfortunately see some of the worst things that people do to each other as well. Not saying I was trying to hide from it, but I just thought, I can do a hell of a lot more good with, with some of the other stuff, which is, um, you know, a a big thing for me. And it turned, it turned what I wanted to do around and made me ask lots of questions of me as a, as a person about, you know, why do I want to be a cop? Why do I want to, you know, go down the path of just catching criminals? Why can't I let's prevent some of the criminals? Can we do more good doing that kind of stuff? And if, if we turn it, you know, I mean, criminality and, and violence and all that kind of stuff that kind of go with that, you know, a lot of that starts with those early pieces with kids who, you know, they're they're disadvantaged. They come from a house of violence. They don't know any different. They treat it like that. They feel rage and anger and all the stuff that go with those things. And then, you know, they take it out on other people and then they end up in prison. And so part of that whole big picture stuff kind of also made me really focus on, on looking at it at a bigger level, even though it was one interaction with one person made me
0: think bigger out of that. Well, let me ask you, a lot of that stuff's very heavy, very kind of negative behavior. Did you ever come home after work and you just felt that this work was overwhelming and and just too challenging for you? To be honest, the the thing that will
1: surprise you probably the most about this, I've seen a lot of uh, suicides. I've been to deaths, bodies, all that kind of stuff. The one moment that stuck out the most was going to a SIDS death. So a young girl, I still remember her room. I went there with my partner and I remember this young lady's room. She was only two or three. Um, and, and, you know, that really hit home for me. There was this young child who died for no reason. Um, parents didn't do anything bad, good home, all those things. And, you know, when I was there, because the father tried to resuscitate the child in the morning when he tried to wake her up, then, you know, we've had a whole house full of people all the relatives were there and they're carrying her around and, you know, you got to try and go, you know, we have to treat this as suspicious until proven otherwise. So, you know, it's, it, it was, it was quite emotional to, A, have that conversation with them, you know, they've got this loss, they clearly distressed and, you know, my daughter, I've got a daughter now, she's 25, but back then she was kind of a similar age. So all those things kind of hit home and, um, you yeah, know, I was probably the most emotional from that. Um, I think you find with police, and I can't speak for everyone, obviously. Um, like when you go to bodies, you kind of detach yourself. You you kind of, you have this black humour and you have comments with each other, which, you know, if people were listening in now, they'd probably think we were mad and would and, and get in trouble for saying the wrong thing. But you, you, you use it as a coping mechanism where, you know, so, yeah, I, I guess I was always able to do that, but this kind of caught me by surprise. I, I wasn't expecting um, that reaction. And and that certainly was one of those instances that really hit me hard.
0: So following up on that. So you come home and, and, you know, you you feel a little emotional and you're feeling your feelings. So how did you deal with that? Did you ever ask for help or how did, what did you do? No, I think, you know, like I
1: said, that particular instance, um, I certainly spoke to my wife about it, and she did tell me to go and talk to someone if I felt I needed it at the time i didn 't think I needed it um, You do tend to I spoke to my partner, the guy that was working with me at the time, and you know we paid our respects and and went to the funeral and and also sent um, flowers and and stuff to the parents because we we kind of just felt that um, it was the right thing to do, but also it was it kind of touched our hearts a bit. So for, for going to that really helped me. Uh, I didn't actually actively go and look for it back in those days. And this is probably well, guessing about 97, 98. Um, you know, the police kind of worked slow on the uptake of of doing things in the proactive way. They did have psychologists, but when I went back to the police, after I became a police officer, I left and worked for a private company for two years. And then they brought me back to actually be the counselor for the police. Um, so that shows that there was not that much for me prior to me leaving and I would have been almost my own counsellor if it had been the other way around because part of my role in rehabilitation of the police um, when I went back to work for them was about setting that up, giving them guidance, giving them counselling. Actually I did a lot of my PTSD and counselling work with the police then was where I really say cut my teeth, not the right word, but um, you know, really really, got much more information in terms of what was working when I was working with these guys and really exploring some of that. Cause even my training, looking back now as a counselor, you know, I did the um postgrad diploma after my psych degree. I, I really didn't feel that I was ready to be a counselor when I first came out of there. I actually, as I learned, taught myself more, listened and and really focused on other things is how I think I developed more insight around what works um, insight around, around the fact that what works for one person doesn't necessarily work for the next person. And so you do have to have more than just, you can't be a one trick pony with this because, um, you know, people have different, uh, backgrounds. Uh, you know, you talked a bit before about why males don't talk. Um, you know, different cultures have very strong, um, rules, I guess, rules of engagement for males and females and, and you know, certain religions are even more so like, uh, I won't go into that big debate, but, you know, um, there, there's certainly things that dictate where males place and where women's places are in, in certain cultures and religions and, and various other things, I guess, that, that influence that. And, you know, when I talk to, um, when, when I run sessions for kids around resilience and mental health, I really want the parents there because a big part of having the parents there is for them to understand that, have you heard of the dialogue model? No. So the dialogue model comes out of a book called Crucial Conversations and how to have them. I won't go into big detail about it, but essentially what it shows is that while I'm having a conversation in my mind and you and I are talking, we're having dialogue, we're throwing information into a pool and we both hear it. If we both feel comfortable, it's just a nice, easy flow. The moment there's a safety issue between one of us or both of us, we will go into that fight or flight. We either say nothing or we get really angry with each other. <laughs> what essentially what essentially happens is if there's any fear factor for a person and they go to silence, it means there's something there that's scaring them. And part of that not wanting to talk about mental health, there's a fear factor there. And if we go to these things I was talking about where the culture and, and the background and all that comes into it, you know, those little comments from your dad, for example, about, oh, you know, suck it up princess, you know, boys don't cry and all that sort of stuff. It sticks in here, right? And so as much as the parents don't necessarily realize that what they're doing is actually having some of those effects on why the boy or the man later on doesn't talk about this stuff is because there's still that little bit of fear factor about talking about whatever the topic is. And so when I've, when I'm running these sessions, um, Sorry, I blacked out there. Um, when I'm running these sessions with um, the, the parents and, and the kids, it's about them understanding the influence they have in the, in what they're saying with the kids. And I'm saying, look, you can't take some stuff back as a parent that you've taken. I was brought up pretty pretty hard. My dad was a certain style. I'm an only child too, so um, you know. Um, and so, as parents, we might say stuff that. You know, in the moment of anger or something, or the kids, you know, annoying you because they're upset and they're crying about something that you think is trivial or whatever and you make those comments, it sticks with them and they they, they hear it and then they're fearful about, oh, is dad going to react badly again if I cry or is dad going to react badly if I bring up a, an issue? So it's a bit important that the parents understand that they've got to create the safety for their kids to have that conversation with them no matter what's going on and be deliberate about it. You know, um, I think that's that's kind of
0: the key with, with that uh, whole approach. You couldn't say it any better. I'll tell you. Well, let's, let's uh, follow up on a little bit about what you talked about. Uh, Let's talk about your nuclear family. Where did you grow up? So I was born in South
1: Africa um, in a place near Cape town, a place called Claremont. Um, I'm an only child. So I had my, my, Parents uh, and me, basically. When, when I first was born, my, grand, my parents lived with my grandparents briefly. Then my grandparents immigrated to Australia and my parents kind of stayed in their place for a little while and then we moved to our own place. So it was always me, mum, and, and my father. Then when I was, sorry, yeah, can we ask another question? No. Well,
0: yeah, I was going to ask you about your father. You know, how, how would you characterize him as a man?
1: Okay, so so my dad's a, a very hands-on guy. Um, he's, a, he's a carpenter by trade, and, and went into other building kind of big concrete um, things later on. Um, but essentially, you know, he's a, he's a he's a kind of blokey bloke, the classic. Played lots of sports. Loves his you know sports and and uh, boxing and and all those things. You, you know, he's kind of um, yeah. He, he he. I would say he was hard. He was pretty hard. Uh, but at the same time, like, he, he wasn't a person, he wasn't a hitter of, of me. You know, I maybe got a couple of smacks when I was really, really young, but beyond six, I don't remember ever getting smacked. He only had to look at me and I was scared enough kind of thing. But there was definitely an an element of um, being fearful of, of Dad um, in that way. But, look, I mean, you know, he, he was a heavy drinker um, and, and that obviously caused some issues with him and Mum. My Mum doesn't drink at all, so it's a... A weird um you know so, so there was you know he, he was a very fairly verbally aggressive guy when he was drinking when he was not drinking he was a very different person but look for me I um I had a pretty good childhood as, as a kid you know he did lots of things with me woodsy things going camping at the beach taught me how to swim all those things so Um, you know, and, and I used to work with him when he'd go on jobs as a carpenter, I'd be his little laborer doing behind and and learned how to do basic carpentry and, and, you know, pretty handsy with my own hands, um, all that kind of stuff. So yeah, yeah, look, I mean, that, that's my dad, uh, yeah. In a, in a nutshell.
0: So let me ask you, did he ever, uh, show you love, discuss emotions and feelings or stop and talk to you about what it was to be a man?
1: I wouldn't say he sat and talked to me about those things. I definitely, um, I was close to my dad, especially when I was really young, did everything with dad. In fact, when dad wasn't there, I'd be upset. (laughs) Um, as people pointed out and, you know, he'd carry me around on his shoulders whenever we were walking. So I, I did get to spend a lot of physical time with my dad. Um, you know, like I said, taught me to swim, taught me to do things like that. Um, as I probably got older, I, we probably drifted, a not say apart a bit more, but, um, you know, there was, there was some elements about his drinking that, that probably didn't go so well with, with me. Um, I was involved in a couple of accidents where he'd been drink driving, and this is going back a little bit. Uh, and I think in the back of my mind, um, I did used to hate, like there's some, how do I put it, there's some episodes where, I knew dad was finishing work. I knew he drank and then he would drive. And, um, you know, as a kid waiting at home as an only child, I got no brother and sister. So I'm waiting at home thinking, you know, it was this time last year that we had a car crash and, you know, dad nearly killed me and him. Um, so, you know, those kinds of things go through your head as a 12 year old or 11 year old at the time. And, And, and I probably resented him a bit for some of that stuff. Um, which kind of, you know, I had a, i spoke to some people years later about this and, and then i kind of, you know, when, when you, as I'm going through my own kind of lessons of, of counseling and thinking about how I feel about things, I kind of came to the realization that I probably did um, not resent him, but it, it, it had an effect on our relationship. And so, you know, I've come to peace with that in my own head, um, but at the same time back then and looking over the years, you know, it does have an impact and, and I've, I've got certainly better at dealing with that and, later on. But again, it's, you know, it impacts.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Let me, let me drill down a little on masculinity. Growing up with your dad and, and how he was around you. Do you think that influenced your view on masculinity and what it was to be a man?
1: Look, um, yes, it definitely did. Um, One of the things about my dad, which always sticks with me is, his respect for women. He always told me if you do, if you don't do, if there's one thing that you do that, you know, <laughs> I wouldn't be happy. If you hit a woman, I'm going to hit you basically. basically the, the short message of, of what that is. So, you know, I, I've never seen my dad raise his hand to, to my mother or anything. Like I said, you know, they all have arguments. He's verbally abusive when he's drunk, but one, one thing um, that was always, drilled into me was about, you know, not hitting a woman and and taking anything out on a woman physically. So, you know, that that, that part always resonates with me and, and it still does and, and certainly part, I wouldn't say the same things to my kids, obviously, in terms of beating them up if they hit a woman. But at the same time, I, I certainly instil that that there's that respect for, for anyone really, not just women. Um, so, yes, that may had an impact on me. I, I think I still remember a conversation that my mum and dad had where, you know, mum was saying that I'm a sensitive child because I'd been crying about, I can't remember what it was about specifically, but I do remember he, he wasn't happy that I was kind of... Um, taking this in the soft way, in in his view. Um, and and mum was really explaining, you know, that this is what Clint's like. And, you know, be, being an only child too, it's a bit different where, you know, you, you and I would have been the oldest, I guess, if, if I had siblings. So um, it's kind of difficult around how you, you know, having support other than, you know, your parents, I guess you you don't get to share stuff with, with siblings and and that kind of stuff. But yeah, look, it had a massive impact in terms of, um, you know, even, even things I I did until I was older and then made my own decisions. Like, um, I guess you felt you had to comply with your parents. Um, and that was probably more dad than mum. Um, so yeah, yeah, you know, like me, even just church and religion and stuff, you, you tended to, to follow the rules of what was expected, and and you didn't challenge anything. So it does it does affect that side of it as well.
0: So, you know, with those masculinity norms that we all grew up with, you know, our fathers, they didn't know any better, and and certainly the media, has glorified, you know being tough and taking it as a man, don't be a sissy and all that stuff. Do you think, do you think that that affected you when it came time for asking for help? Like when you would come home from a a tough day at work and your wife was saying, Hey, you know, you ought to think maybe, you know, to get help if you, uh, if you think you need it. And you're, you told us that, Hey, at, at first you didn't, you didn't think you needed it and you could handle it. So do you think that that masculinity norm that your father really was teaching you by association, do you think that influenced you asking for help?
1: Look, I, I, I think it did. Um, what, what, I know, I know um, you know, one of the things that um, I guess looking back, you know the, the the times where I've had tough times, um, really tough times. I have kept it to myself, and there's times where you go, um, and and I guess you, you you think you can deal with it, and you you feel like you know, like the, yeah, there were times where like I've I've been to the point where I've i felt under stress uh, at various stages to the point where you know I'm I'm literally going to throw up in the street type of thing, and and then I I kind of do the self-talk and this is going back before I kind of knew some of the stuff I know now. And, and that's part of the getting to the point, of knowing that this stuff can help you is then just kind of digging into yourself and, and going, you can do this, you can, you know, and, and you're right. I think it, you know, I, I can't put a finger on why I didn't go and see somebody, but I dare say that's probably in the back of my mind of why it's like, you don't want to share your problems. You don't want other people to know your things. Um, my parents, even looking back growing up in South Africa, was very much because um, i'm a dark South african, i'm, I'm what they call a cape colored in South Africa and for people that know about apartheid um, many years ago, south africa's you know black and white segregation component was pretty big politically around the world and um the closer you were to being white was kind of the ideal, and we were in the middle, so we weren't completely what they called blacks but we were certainly cape colored so we weren't quite white kind of stuff so there was there was elements of um how you project yourself out to the world and and what you seem like you always have to dress the right way and it was very much about the persona you put on and i think the same came across in terms of what you are as as, as a man and as a person is that you know no one else should know your problems so it's kind of it's related to the to the masculinity but it's also related to the image you're supposed to project as as a person in in South Africa and, and and that was you know very much entrenched in me like you know I can't go down the street wearing old clothes and and looking the wrong part because someone might see me like that it still sticks in my head so you know those things influence um how you expect it to behave and and, and certainly the masculinity side is definitely about not showing weakness and, and not having, it's almost like don't give someone else ammunition to come and whack you with later. So, you know, you, you, and when I talked about that fear factor of not having a conversation, I think that certainly sits there that that's just another thing you don't want people to know about you. So, you know, they're going to take advantage
0: of that in some way, shape or form. Well, yeah, that's, um, I talk about that in my book about you know when when people don't um, they don't get help and they might have some mental health issues they that's when risky behavior kind of appears, whether it's alcohol or pills or drugs yep. or fighting or whatever it may be and I know personally, I was abused as a child. I didn't realize this until I was uh, away at school, but, you know, I was verbally and emotionally and physically abused. And that started me to fool around, you know, with alcohol and drugs. And I didn't, you know, it wasn't until, you know, maybe 10 years ago, that I really asked for help. And I think back that, uh-huh. that I was affected by those masculinity norms that my father associated with. And, and I think a lot the media has, has kind of brainwashed me about that. Now, you said you don't remember getting smacked uh, after about age six, which is, I think that's great. I think it's kind of healthy. <laughs> That you know, yeah. that, that didn't continue, thank God. So, did did you ever display any risky behavior as a child growing up uh, with alcohol or drugs or stealing or? Yeah,
1: I think more, more the more the alcohol. Um, like I probably started drinking around fifteen, sixteen years old, playing football. Um, my dad would offer me a beer at home, um, so you know it wasn't. At the time, you don't think about those things as being good, bad, or indifferent. You kind of look back and go, was it the right thing? I don't know. I probably would have drunk even if he didn't kind of do it. And I'm sure, I don't know what age he started drinking, but it was probably around the same time or, or earlier. So um, yeah, look, al- alcohol uh, certainly played a big part in, in my you know early teens, late 20s you know, I still have a drink now, but certainly, um, you know, uh, drinking too excess where, you know, you're throwing up and, and being sick and that kind of stuff. Those days are long gone from me now, but, you know, it certainly was a big part of, of your life. Was I doing anything crazy, risky, probably not as much as, um, other friends of mine. So unfortunately, I lost one of the reasons I wrote my book too, was I lost a friend of mine in his early twenties who I played football with. And, Fortunately for me, I, I didn't follow the same path. We played football together. He used to smoke a lot of um, of marijuana and, um, you know, ultimately it I think it had a massive impact on him suiciding. He hung himself at the age of 23 or 24 and, um, you know, I obviously drank but I didn't use that and, and certainly um, I'm glad I, I didn't. But I think, you know, Certainly in terms of lessons learned for myself, I make sure with my own children, my two, you know, they're they're not users of drugs. They're very minimal drinkers. Um, You know, it's kind of scary that my wife and I are the party goers when it comes to to that compared to my own children who are in their 20s. So that's a good thing. Um, But yeah, look, I I think um, it's hard to kind of put a finger on it, isn't it? Because you you when you think about it and reflect upon it you kind of go well how did I become who I've become and then you go okay you've had these influences in your life and and that kind of stuff I mean my parents only live an hour down the road I see them quite regularly and and it's um you know they're very supportive and, and my dad doesn't drink anywhere near as much as he did before and so there's you know we all learn lessons along the way and and I guess it's it's about not creating a pattern and keeping that pattern going and and that's that's kind of what I used to worry about when I used to go into houses and see those kids that are disadvantaged, that they don't end up being just like mum and dad and they raise the same kids as them and they bring up the same stuff and, and, and that yeah. they can at least kind of break that cycle a little bit. And, and to your point around, you know, when you're young, you don't necessarily know, like I, I look back, I, I was sexually abused by my uh, a family member, not my dad, but um, you know, looking back um, it probably didn't affect me as much as, what other people think it should like I've talked to people about it since and they go, Oh, you know, you would have been horrified. And, and I was like, actually, I wasn't horrified. I was kind of, I wouldn't say it was, you know, I was probably too young to understand because I was a child. Um, they weren't that much older than me three or four years older. So um, yeah, I guess, you know, like my wife gets more upset about it than I do. Cause I'm like, it's ancient history. I don't, I don't give it much thought. I don't worry about the person that, that did it? Um, I don't let it bother me at all, really. And and it probably sounds wrong, but it. Um, I, I guess I made that decision for whatever reason, and and I've been okay since. So um, it's a hard one with trauma, because you know you deal with people in trauma, and some people have similar experiences, and it's you know horrendous for them, and and they can't move on. And and I guess that's you know kind of why. It helps to talk to the right people who can maybe get you over the line, and that's the key.
0: Yeah, well, I'm a big football fan too. I follow Manchester United. And okay. I'm a Cristiano Ronaldo fan because he played there, and I, <laughs> I actually saw him play there. And wow, that's he, awesome! He just posted something. He said, "I think it's good to be an emotional person." Who said man, men don't cry?
1: And yeah, so I saw I, that on your on your thing.
0: Yeah, I posted that on
1: <laughs> Facebook
0: because, yeah. you know, I just want to show men that, you know, the appropriate time, the appropriate place, especially with yeah. other men, it's okay, you know? Of course. And especially when you're asking for help, you know, to admit that you have these feelings, you have these emotions, and you're trying to figure it out. And, yeah. you know, is this part of good health or bad health or, you know, how should I look at it? So. Um, Yes, I'm glad that a guy like Ronnie here is taking the (laughs) best and just saying, "Hey, it's okay." Exactly. With everything that you had growing up, did you do you ever think you were challenged by depression or any kind of mental health issues?
1: I I did have two episodes, um, and a lot of it was kind of related to financial stuff at the time. We had 2008 where I had a lot of money invested and stuff like that. And obviously it went pear shaped based on, you know, again, COVID was one of those things out of the blue and 2008 was a bit like that. So, you know, financially there was some, uh, a period there where I wasn't in a good place around, you know, um, where, where, where we were and, and what it meant for us as a family and, and what we wanted to do and all the rest of the stuff. And and so um, but no, I didn't. I didn't get help. I kind of gritted my teeth and do what uh, I guess I was always taught to do. Um, but thankfully, look, I mean, it, it did teach me to um, to really focus on solutions. And when when I finally flicked to the solution component, like. No point staying here. I mean, there's a great, I can't remember who said it, but there's a great uh, quote where it says, you know, no one ever do- drowns by falling in the water. They drown by staying there. And so the same kind of thing around, if I stay there, it's not going to be good. If I do something about it, you know, then then you, you, you're you kind of focusing in another way and you, you're looking at how I get out of this to get to somewhere. And that's the key part is that I think there's, you know, if, if people genuinely feel that they can't talk about it, Big part of this is going okay. If you can't talk about it, there's a fear factor of what you think is going to do with other people's relationships towards you, or how they, how you think they're going to react towards you. So, some of that's hard to change. But if we can do things where they start to at least go, well, what can I do for myself? What is that? If it's not talking to someone, is it? Is there things I can do? And, and you know, part of the book is written around that practicality side. Um, my current book, I'm, I'm working on a second one now, is focusing on almost like a self-help book on physical, but you doing it for the mental side, like I said, using the same analogies going, well, you know, what are some of the things you can do if you don't feel comfortable talking to people or, Hey, here's like a therapy session. It's, you know, (laughs) but giving you ideas and understanding a bit about your brain, understanding what things you can do, maybe even giving you, you know, set things to try that you might not have thought about. So, you know, part of that is, is about at least, not demystifying things, but getting people okay with going, okay, I can find out about this. And as they get better about it, or they try some things and they go, wow, that actually worked, or that didn't work. Then, you know, you can kind of see some change there. I guess that's part of of that whole trying to change things for themselves thing.
0: Yeah. Well, now you have children, so you're a father. And how do you think you are as a father? Are you easy? Are you tough? You lose your cool. Do you yell and scream. You show your emotions. Show love. Tell me a little about I, that.
1: Yeah, I, I think there's a, there's a diff, there's a few different clints in in that whole 25 years. That's how my daughter is. She's the oldest. Um, look, I, I probably early on in my police career, my wife pointed out that I was a lot angrier than I used to be. Um, I wouldn't yell at the kids per se and take anything, but I, I'd be angry in general. I'd be, you know yelling at other drivers on the road and probably, you know, um, way more than I should be. It's not just the normal, oh, he cut me off, I'm not happy, that kind of stuff. I was probably getting to the point where it would really um, hang around a bit longer. Um, Looking back, I think, you know, I I spent a lot of time. I was, I guess the the big thing from my dad's perspective was, you know, he spent a lot of time with me. We played a lot. We went on drives. We went to the, and mum was with us too, so I shouldn't just say it's about dad, but, my dad did a lot of physical play and, you know, um, even now when my dad sees kids, he's always a real kid lover. He'll pick up little kids and they'll swing them around and, you know, they just levitate to him because he's that kind of um, boisterous kind of guy. And, and and I guess that's always been a, a thing I've done with my, my kids when we've always done holidays as a family, we do bushwalks. There's a lot of physical things Um you know, fitness things that you would naturally do but involve play, swimming a lot, snowboarding. We love snowboarding. And, and my kids love doing that stuff even now with us as, as adults, you know, they're in their 20s. And so I think that's a positive. The negative side is, you know, I'm probably a bit like my dad. If I'm drinking too much, I, I can be a bit silly in terms of verbally silly, saying stupid stuff. And, you know, never been, again, never been physical with the kids um, as in, Physical uh, hitting them or anything like that, but yeah, I mean, if I could have it all over again, it's, there's certainly aspects of that, the anger, um, and and I, I think I, I probably would have more conversations with them about the growing up. I think we've had a couple of deep and meaningful, especially with my daughter. She had some tough time with bullying at high school, and we really did say, "Hey, if you've got any problems, come and talk to us. We don't care what happens." We actually moved her out of school straight away. We didn't muck around with that task. It was one of those non-negotiables. I don't want to find out the hard way. I made a mistake by leaving her at the school. So, you know, we made some big decisions. It was disruptive for the family, but we just made it happen. Um, so it was important that that kind of just said to her, hey, this is way more important and, and we're pretty comfortable that they would come to us with anything. So creating that safety for them to talk about things uh, was a bit more deliberate after that particular episode with my daughter. Um, but from a masculinity side, I probably haven't really, uh, and if I had a chance to do it again, I probably would spend more time with my son where it's just me and him. We probably don't have a lot of just me and him time where, okay, let's go out with the boys kind of thing. Um, you know, which, which I think is important. I think it's, it's having said that, I've got some good role model friends who, um, used to come over and their families would come over and we'd see each other. And so he did get that, a fair bit of that interaction. He's got good relationships with those guys. Um, so, but yeah, me and, me and him per se, it might be something that I, I probably should do a bit more of because um, I, I know I enjoyed it when I did it with my dad. I've been on a couple of trips with my dad and his friends many years ago. And, you know, they teach you how to make fire and, you know, chop wood up the proper way. And, you know, I teach him little things like how to barbecue properly and stuff like that. So, um, you know, you, you do little things, but I probably haven't been deliberate about talking about the masculinity side and, and, and that kind of thing.
0: So, you've had a lot of great experiences in your career and, and personally. Um, what have you learned from all of these experiences? And, and would you have done anything differently?
1: Oh, I think you always want to do some things a bit differently. Um, but look for, for, for me, um, the, the, the best experiences have been more around, um, traveling, not see w- w- early on in my career or sorry, early on, uh, coming into school, as I said, you know, you're influenced by your parents on what you go into. I went to university looking back, uh, I probably could have done things slightly differently with with what I studied. Um, In the end, I finished my psych degree. I didn't actually enjoy the degree itself. I thought I would. Um, Looking back, you know, like I've actually, my son started university a couple of years ago and it wasn't for him. And we were just like, it's okay. You don't have to do university, but you're not going to sit on your bum doing nothing. So if you're going to do something, go find a job kind of thing. So he did and he's doing really well. But, you know, for me, if I look back now, University taught me probably how to think a bit more, but not necessarily the content was fantastic for what I, I, I got out of it. But, um, you know, um, there probably some key things that I might have changed a little bit. In terms of, look, I've been married 25 years only this month. So, um, you know, I'm pretty stable in my relationship with my wife and we have a great relationship. Um, you know, we do a lot of things together. And, and so I, I probably wouldn't change too much in that space. But look, in my early days, I was probably... Um, you know, before meeting my wife, I was probably a bit more going out and just you know drinking too much and and um, you know <laughs> trying to trying to get with girls as you do and all that kind of stuff. So you know, there, there's probably some things there that wasn't the best behaviour, but I guess it's also you. Um, Finding out about yourself and, and I guess your own sexuality and your own, um, you know, finding your way in the world. So there, there's definitely lessons learned all along the way. Um, but look, one of the thing, key things I've learned for myself through this whole journey with the psych stuff, working with people and all that kind of stuff is about not allowing your strong emotions to dominate. I think, you know, understanding that you have them is fine and that they're there to kind of give you some insight that something may not be right. But if you get stuck, that's when you've got to do something. If you're constantly going to that high emotion, whether it's sadness, whether it's anger, whether it's, you know, depression, all those things is where we we can help each other a lot more around making sure people realize that they're stuck. Because sometimes when they don't, and this is where the body chemistry, as you know, works against you when you're feeling depressed, these different things change in levels and so your cortisol levels go up and that doesn't means you don't want to go and see people and all this stuff. And then it all compounds with each other. So then, you know, you start thinking, oh, people, no one cares about me. So then you get more depressed and then you kind of talk yourself into a bigger spiral or so, you know, those kinds of things are, are things I've learned that um, I probably wouldn't allow that to happen to myself uh, going forward. Cause I kind of know enough now about, how to change where I'm at. You can't change things happening. I know people are gonna die in my life. I've got a 17 year old Staffordshire Bull Terrier and you I'm know, gonna be heartbroken when he goes, but you know you, you know that the big show goes on and, and and how we deal with those things and prepare ourselves is, is, is a key part of, of life. And, and you know, at the end of the day experiences, you mentioned experiences, Have, have everyone can have lots of experiences. They're not all gonna be great, but it's all about being human, being males as well you know, I think that's a key part for young males is understanding those emotions are there. We all got them. Why, why would we have them And we we're not allowed to cry and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, it's about just not getting stuck there and and letting it dominate you as a person.
0: Good. All right. One last question. How, how do you describe masculinity?
1: It's a tough one because, um, I think there's a slight difference between masculinity and manhood. I think with masculinity, there's, there's some women that are way more masculine than some men and some, you know, um, but I think if you think of ourselves more, more from a man perspective, like, you know, um, no matter what people says in you know, politically correct or whatever, we're, we're not equal. There's definitely physical differences. There's, and I'm talking on average, of course, there's some women that are way taller than men and bigger than men and all that stuff. But on the, on the whole, there's some physical differences to men. There's also different, um, you know, um, body uh, hormones and all that stuff that happen. In women menstruate, and there's things that there's physical things that happen in that period. And then at the same time, their um, their brain chemistry is different, and their behaviour is different, and all that stuff. So for me, about being a man is about being comfortable in your own skin and understanding you as, as you, like if you happen to be a gay male, then so be it. But this is kind of you as it's, it's about not wanting to put on. And, and like I said to you before, you know, prior, many years ago, as a child, you know, wanting to project the best version of me, you've got to wear this and you've got to look like that and all that kind of stuff. This is about you feeling comfortable to go. I don't have to put that on. This is Clint. I like, You know, woodwork or I want to go hunting or I want to do this shouldn't be about um, what other people are saying about it just because other people have a different opinion. We're never going to please everybody so we've got to kind of just be a little bit authentic about what works for me you know if I like ballet and I'm a bloke who cares if I like playing football and wood chopping and all that but there's no reason that we can't kind of embrace all of that and go you know what, it's about manhood and there's a part of, um, you know, if we if we look at it from a, the old hunter-gatherer days where, you know, men don't have kids, it's just, it's real, right? We don't have them. And so part of that whole traditional um, labour and, you know, the wife has the kids and, and looks after them and does the gathering and the guy goes out and does the hunting, there's a physical aspect to that. It's, it's about enhancing your chances of catching the deer and all that stuff. So I think there's there's an element of, of that natural kind of order of of things back in the day that still sits with us. But at the same time, you know, we don't have to be shying away from it. I think there's a lot of stuff now about being politically correct and, you know, you can't open a door for a woman and that kind of stuff. For me, you can always make an error on the side of being respectful is my view, but hey, if people don't want to, it's a calibration process. If you're adamant you don't want to go and open the door and he opens it for you, you say, "Hey, thank you very much." Again, it's about that conversations that we have. You go, "Okay, that's cool. You want to share everything 50/50? That's cool too." Like it's about, you know, when we meet people, it's that that courting component. Is if you are, you know, in an intimate relationship, it's about having that calibration piece. Some people love that. They go, "You know, that's just how it is." And again, it's. We all come from different backgrounds and the more we talk, the more we know what each other want. But, you know, I'm not going to get angry with somebody because they, they don't act exactly like me. Um, I've had enough experience with diversity of people. I work with asylum seekers here in Australia um, and, um, you know, very different backgrounds and cultural thoughts about lots of things that certainly not the same as what I think. So, you know, same with, with masculinity, I think... Um, yeah. It all comes down to the person feeling comfortable with themselves as a man uh, as a young boy who wants to be a man and and and, and figuring out what 's best for them. The bottom line for anything in my view in my philosophy is you know if you 're not hurting people and you 're here to help people and 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 that 's the best you can do you know you're 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 up there with with the best people in my book is about you know um just doing good rather than hurting anybody you can do whatever you like as long as you don't hurt people is, is what I think about life so good. I guess that probably covers masculinity too good
0: all right as as you can see Clint's story is quite remarkable he's a self-made man of courage bravery and he gives to his community he's a true role model for our world today we're honored to have had you on our podcast today any final thoughts before we go
1: no, look, I really, I like the stuff you're doing. I've, I've been looking at, at your previous ones as well. And, and I think, uh, you know, I think we're on the same page with with a lot of um, wanting to help people. And, and I think the more we spread that and the more people talk about it, especially, you know, the topic of mental health and, and men and mental health. And there's obviously women as well, but men are obviously way more at risk. When it comes to suicide because of those reasons of not wanting to talk. And I think, um, you know, more people talk about it, even your quote about Ronaldo and, and saying what he said, you know, people need to, it's, it's great to have awareness, but it's also great to then explore past that awareness and go, well, what other things can we do to help those people get through those tough times? Cause they're going to come, but we just got to be ready and be okay that it'll come and I can move through it and then I'm good.
0: Yeah. Great. Well, I look forward to continuing our dialogue, Clint, uh, moving forward Absolutely. So, I can, so I can learn from you and I can help others. So thanks again. Listeners, no problem. Thank you for having me. Listeners, please look out for our podcast, Time Out for Mental Health, wherever you get your podcasts. and Keep your eyes out for my new book, You Don't Have to Swallow Your Gun, a simple book for men about depression, masculinity, and suicide. And please contact me for speaking engagements or consulting through my website, timcrass.com. Have fun, everybody.